Let me add my welcome to that of Anne uh, earlier. Uh, it's great to see you. I know it's holiday season, and so uh, we've, uh, we're missing some people away on holiday, and uh, others have returned from, uh, from a holiday. It's that sort of time of transition, isn't it? But it's great that you're here. Uh, and uh, uh, as most of you know, our usual practice in Foundation is to systematically work our way through that entire book of the Bible, rather than just uh, pick themes kind of randomly. Uh, in this way, we, we take each passage in the context in which it was written, uh, but also it avoids us picking our pet subjects and pet themes, uh, or avoiding uh, the difficult subjects that arise sometimes in Scripture. And you'll know we were working through the letter to the Hebrews in the run-up to the summer, and we will resume that uh, in September. Uh, but for the summer holiday weeks, we are doing a mini-series called Growing Together, seeking to understand how God uses uh, different aspects to help us grow in our faith, to become more mature, and in our desire to become more like Jesus. You'll remember, if you were here, Owen started the series talking about the importance of every Christian being part of a local church, a local body of believers, and then spoke on how within that church community we're called upon to help one another to grow to maturity, speaking into each other's lives, discipling one another, passing on what God is giving us to others and then last week, if you were here, Chris showed us how we're called upon to serve within the local church, using the gifts that God has given us. But more than that, actually having an attitude of serving, following the example given to us in Christ Jesus. If you've missed any of those, I'd encourage you to go online and, and catch up so that the series is, is complete this week, I want to look at another aspect of how we, grow, how we grow to maturity in faith as individuals and how we can grow together as a community of God's people, and that is in giving. Now, you might be thinking, I can see how being part of a local church within which we can be discipled and in which I can serve are all part of growing together. But what's giving got to do with it? Well, my hope is that by the end of our time together this afternoon, you'll see that our giving is a fundamental part of us growing as Christians and of us growing together. I want us to look at the answers uh, to some very simple questions, the what, how, and why questions about giving this afternoon. So firstly, what we give. When we come to look at our attitude towards money and possessions and giving, we, we need firstly to recognize that actually we all have history. Each of us grew up in a family environment where the, the values and the attitudes may have been very different. For some, it may have been a very comfortable existence. The family never went short. Whenever you wanted something, it was always available. You were always able to go out and buy it. For others, it may have seemed 
like relative poverty, always having to make ends meet, often having to go without. Some may have seen their parents always looking out for other people, always seeking to be generous to those who are less well off. Others may have seen quite the opposite. And then in adulthood, you know, we may have chosen to follow the example of our parents, their values and their attitudes, or we may have actually chosen to live our lives very differently. Each of us also probably has some history of teaching within a church environment that may have shaped our thinking. You may have spent time in a mainstream denomination where there were central funds that were available that would be passed down to a local church if the giving within the local church was not sufficient to meet uh, the costs. Others may have been taught tithing, the giving of 10% of your income, almost as a legalistic requirement. For my own part, I spent uh, a few years in a mainstream uh, denomination. I grew up in a mainstream denomination, and, and when we were first married, we spent some years in a similar environment. And we gave what we thought to be generously in that context. We then moved to another church where the teaching was based around some of the Old Testament requirements, but more as an indicator uh, than a legalistic thing of what God's people did under the law and as an encouragement for us who've experienced God's grace to do as much, if not more. Now, having said all of that, I want us to focus solely this afternoon on what the Bible says about giving. Whilst this is a short thematic series, we're determined that we will ground what we have to say in Scripture and not in our own experiences, and certainly not in our own preferences. And that's true of what I want to bring today. I read that in 1973, Howard Dayton, a successful American businessman, began doing a study on the Bible and categorized all of the scriptures that talk about money and possessions into a single topical index. The result is a culmination of 2,350 scriptures that talk about money and our use of it. Now, I haven't checked that out. Uh, I haven't been through and counted them up. But that's a massive number. But uh, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that there are passage, passage after passage talks about money or possessions, giving, uh, and the way we use our money. But Howard Dayton said that having done this study, he said that study radically and permanently changed me from worshipping money to serving Christ. Why are there so many verses on money and its uses? Well, I think it's because God knows that our attitude towards money is an indication of where our heart is with God. We will either follow gold or God, and we cannot serve two masters. We'll either turn to our wallet or to worshipping him when we look to the source for our security. 
Now, we could be here for an awfully long time if we were to go through all those references, so we'll limit ourselves to a, key, a few key passages. I want us to look first of all at the Old Testament teaching and then uh, dive into the New Testament. The, the principle of God's people offering, uh, bringing offerings to him was established long before God handed down the law to Moses. Back in Genesis 4, we see that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. You may remember that Cain brought some of the fruit of the land, whereas Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, the very best. Even then we see that God saw into the heart of the giver. He knew their motivations, and so he had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. When the Israelites had escaped slavery in Egypt and were in the wilderness, God handed down the laws to Moses for him to instruct the people. In Leviticus 27 and verse 30, we read, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The giving of these tithes was a recognition that everything that they had was given by God. So giving back to him was an act of worship, a way of honoring God for his provision for them. These laws were specifically for God's people. They marked them out as being different, living different lives, having different values to those around them. And we see tithing worked out in practice in 2 Chronicles and chapters 30 and 31 when King Hezekiah called the people to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In chapter 31 we read, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah, who lived in the cities of Judah, also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. Here we see tithing being used as a provision for the priests and the Levites who had no income and no inheritance. It was part, in part a way for providing for them and their families, and also for supporting temple costs. The principle is established that those who dedicate their lives to serving God rather than working in some other paid employment should be supported generously. When we turn to the New Testament, Jesus does have a conversation with the Pharisees about tithing. It's recorded in Luke's Gospel and chapter 11. But his comments are calling them out 
They're calling them out for their attitude. The fact that they were neglecting justice and the love of God while making a great point of tithing herbs. You know, they didn't love God. They neglected justice to those around them, but they gave the tithe of their herbs. Jesus himself doesn't bring any new teaching on the subject of tithing, but he does speak on giving and on generosity. When he saw the widow put into the temple treasury two very small coins, he commended her for putting in all that she had to live on as compared to the rich who gave out of their wealth. Elsewhere, when he was in Bethany, you may remember, a woman anointed his head with a very expensive perfume. And Jesus challenged those who rebuked her, saying that what she had done was a beautiful thing. What she did showed an extravagant devotion to Jesus. It was an act of worship. The teaching in the rest of the New Testament focuses on generosity in giving rather than any mention of or direction to tithe. We see an example of this in the early church where we read in Acts 2 of the things they devoted themselves to. And Luke goes on to say, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This was community at work. This wasn't some sort of commune. This wasn't a collective where everything was pooled, where nobody owned anything. No, they had their possessions, but they held them lightly. They weren't precious about them. They would willingly give them up or sell them in order that others in the community could be helped and have their needs met. This was not giving under compulsion. It was not meeting some sort of legal requirement. They'd heard and responded to the good news of the gospel as preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. They'd experienced the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and all of this, all of this was the motivation behind their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to their devotion for sharing fellowship together, their devotion for praying with one another, and their devotion to making sure that the needs of their fellow believers were met. This is what lay behind their extraordinary generosity. In Acts 11, we see the disciples in Antioch becoming aware of a need and deciding to provide help, each one according to his ability. Here's a recognition that God had blessed each one in different ways and in different measures. But there was a willingness and a desire from each one to provide help insofar as they were able. What can we draw from all of this? Well, whilst tithing wasn't practiced, but was, was practiced by Jews in the Old Testament, 
and actually by the Jews in the, in the Gospels as recorded. There's no teaching on this by Jesus or the apostles. I don't want to suggest what you should give this afternoon. Please hear me on this. Each person will have their own understanding or interpretation of what generous giving looks like. For me, what tithing does is to establish a helpful benchmark. Secondly, I want to look at why we give. The passages we've already looked at touch on some of the reasons we give. Firstly, to meet needs in the church. Looking at those verses in Acts 2, it's clear that some within the church were better off than others. What is clear also is that this was a vibrant community of believers. We talk about being saved into the family of God. Well, what we see in Acts 2 is family at work. I don't know about you, but if I see any of my kids struggling and unable to meet their needs, do I just stand back and observe? No, my heart is that I want to help them if I have the ability to do so. I would guess I'm not alone in that. And if that applies in our natural family, why should it be any the less within the family of God? One of the reasons why growing together is so important is that by sharing our lives with one another, we become aware of one another's needs and we're able to respond accordingly. If we're ignorant of one another's needs, there's no way in which we can move toward them and provide help. I can remember when I was in my early 40s, being made redundant from a company that I worked at for years and where I thought I would probably spend the rest of my career advancing into different roles. And it came as quite a shock when I was made redundant. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time was that I was going to spend nine months looking for my next position before I could start another job. And that for us was a challenging time but a time when we as a family need to, needed to rely on and trust in God all the more. But you know, during that time, we experienced extraordinary generosity and kindness from other people uh, within our church family. We, we received gifts from unknown sources just posted through our letterbox. We received meals from people, extraordinary generosity from people because we were in a community that knew us and loved us and cared for us. You know, and we have life groups within Foundation. In fact, you've probably all received a communication about life groups, even in this last week. And one of the purposes for our life groups is that we can look out and care for one another. Yes, they're there for us to disciple one another and so on, but actually... These are a kind of microcosm of family, just as foundation is one family, this is a smaller part of that family, meeting together and becoming far more aware of the needs of one another than we can possibly do as a, an overall church.
So we know this happens already within foundation to some degree on an informal basis. And as we develop our relationships further within life groups and beyond, we can expect to see it happen all the more. I think it's so beautiful when needs are met informally by those in closest relationship with the ones in need. But we recognize it can't always happen that way. That's why very early on as a church, we established a jubilee fund into which some give, either on a regular basis or an occasional basis. And it's from within that fund that we're able to offer help beyond that which might otherwise be available, both to those within the foundation family and in the wider community. It's been a real privilege to be able to help people from that Jubilee Fund over the last three years. Secondly, you know, the second reason we give is to meet ministry costs within the local church. You know, we now get into an area that we don't often talk about, but it's nevertheless important and thoroughly scriptural. Ministry costs money. Let me say that again. You know, ministry costs money. If we want to do stuff, it costs money. The local church, as with any other organization or household, has running costs. Also, to ensure that people within the church are well served and to provide resource to assist the local church to reach out to others with the gospel, often people are employed. You know, we have James and Madeline employed within foundations set apart for ministry amongst us. And part of our giving needs to fund these costs. We're so thankful for the faithful and generous giving of so many that has allowed us to employ ministry workers and to fund the work that the church does and has done to date. And you know, this is no different from New Testament times. In Luke 8, we see Jesus and the 12 disciples traveling from city and vi- through, through cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And in verses 2 and 3 of Luke chapter 8, we read that there were some women and others who provided for them out of their means. They were supported. They had funds provided for them and provisions provided for them. When Jesus sent out the 72, recorded for us in Luke 10, he gave them strict instructions. They were to take no money or possessions, no provisions with them. Rather, that when they entered a house and were offered hospitality, they were to stay there while they were ministering. And he explains for us in verse 7 the principle which was that the laborer deserves his wages. Another aspect of us growing together is growing numerically as we see others come to faith. It's not just that we should exist as some holy huddle and be content that we are the numbers that we are. Whilst we don't you know, go for numbers per se, We want to see people added to the kingdom of God. 
And so we want to reach out. And how is that going to happen? Well, we need to be faithful in sowing seeds and in sending out laborers into the harvest fields. Do you remember the prophetic word that was given to Owen some months ago about there being a harvest in adjacent fields and about us needing to employ different implements and different tools in order to bring in uh, that harvest, new ways to gather in the harvest. To do this, we need to invest in new resources that will enable us to reach out into the surrounding area and to disciple those that then come to faith. That way, not only will we grow closer together as a community, but we will see a growing community of believers in Jesus. The third reason why we give together is to meet wider ministry needs. The example I referred to earlier of Christians in Antioch giving was in the context of supporting a church elsewhere. In this case, in Judea. In Acts 11, Luke writes, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We see this also played out in 1 Corinthians 16, where we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So here's Paul holding up an example to the Corinthian Christians. This is what the Galatians did. So you are also to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seemed advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Here is Paul so anxious that the other churches that he had established should join in providing support for the church in Jerusalem where there was need. Great hardship because of a famine. So here he urges the Corinthian Christians to give to provide relief. You know, as a church, we routinely give 5% of our income into the advanced movement of which we're a part. And that's part of our contribution to seeing churches planted and strengthened in the UK and further afield. And we also set aside a further 5% to meet needs that we become aware of in churches in the UK and overseas. I think you'd agree with me that within the UK, 
we live in an area that is widely acknowledged as being re relatively affluent. That's certainly true when you compare our living standards to those of many other nations around the world. Through the faithful giving at Foundation, it's been our privilege to support churches in Madagascar, in India, and in Nepal, as well as providing some targeted help to those where the impacts of COVID uh, were far more severe than they were here. I want to thank you for contributing to our ability to be able to do that. It's a privilege to be able to support others in this way. And as a church, we're eager to do so all the more. So now I want to look at the final question, and that is how we give. How we are encouraged to give and the attitude we should have as we give. And actually, there's a number of different uh, aspects that we could look at. I've limited myself to five. I could have gone a lot longer than that, but I I've picked out five uh, aspects or attitudes that we should have as we give. The first one is regularly. That passage that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 16 speaks of them putting something aside on the first day of every week. This establishes a principle for us of giving systematically and regularly from our income, whether it be weekly or monthly. For years now, I've, I've made it a practice that on the first day of the month, I will set aside. Um, and, and most of us do this now by standing order or whatever. Um, set aside a, a sum of money to be transferred. So it's gone. It's, it's, it's given. It's given as an act of worship at the beginning of the month. And then we live off what is left after that. I read a quotation when I was preparing this, which said, it's a very short quotation, are you giving what is right or what is left? And part of my way of making sure that it's not what is left is by giving it on the first day of the month, or it might be the first day of the week, as was the case for the Corinthians. Secondly, we're encouraged to give generously. Whilst the New Testament provides no formula for our giving, what is clear from the examples we've looked at is that the early church practiced generous giving. In some cases, they were made aware of needs, as with Paul and the famine in Jerusalem. But in the examples in the Acts of the Apostles, it appears that the close sense of community that they shared meant that they saw when others were struggling and they were quick to respond, even to the point of selling their possessions to meet that need. On the subject of generosity, Tim Keller wrote, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. When we as a church practice a generosity that's alien to this world, it will mark us out as being different to those around us. And that difference will be attractive to those who witness it, just as it was 
uh, in the early church, as we read in Acts 2 and Acts 4. A very, a very small example of this is, has been as we provide meals for families where there's been an illness or, or there's a newborn. Others have actually been caused to comment. Non-Christians have been caused to comment and be curious as to what it is or who it is that motivates us to give in this way. Beyond our regular and systematic giving, there is also a place for offerings. We see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. As people gave to specific causes or a particular celebration at various festivals. So generous giving is the second aspect. The third is sacrificially. Sacrifice is costly. In Old Testament times, as the Jews brought their sacrifices and offerings, we've seen it was the first fruits or the firstborn. It was bringing the very best that you have before the Lord might have been that very best that you would have liked to have kept for yourself. But the principle was to bring your very best as an offering to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes of the giving of the Macedonian Christians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You know, some phrases in there that really stand out to me. You know, verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, yeah, that's great, abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You might have thought, actually, that one of those would cancel out the other. You know, if it was a mathematical equation, you know, you would have thought that the, uh, the, uh, the extreme poverty would cancel out the abundance of joy and cause them not to be generous. But actually, these things came together and caused an overflow in the wealth of generosity on their part. The expression in verse 3 of them giving beyond their means speaks to me of sacrifice. You know, I ask myself, did they go bankrupt? Well, no, we certainly don't read of any examples of them going bankrupt. I don't think so. But did they go without certain things in order to meet a need? Yes, actually, that's my understanding. Some of us will have experienced times when we felt called to give beyond what seems to make sense. But in obedience, we've stepped out and seen God meet our needs. 
I can think of a time when uh, we were in a church where there was a, a major building uh, project uh, about to, uh, to take place. And as leaders within the church, the encouragement was, and, and the example given, uh, was to double tithe. Uh, we were tithing at the time, and the encouragement was to give a second tithe. The second tithe being to the building project, the first tithe to the church costs. And the further encouragement was th uh, that this should be from your gross income and not your net income. Wow, did that cause us to get on our knees before God? But we we stepped up to the plate. We sacrificed in order to make that happen. We sacrificed holidays, put on whole plans that we might have had for doing work on the house. But we saw God meet our needs through that time. You know, these early Christians, they gave generously, but they gave sacrificially. The fourth aspect is that they gave willingly. In that same passage in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8, we see that the church in Macedonia didn't just give willingly, but they, they begged for the opportunity to meet the need they knew of. They begged for the opportunity. Such was that sense of community and sense of love for one another. In the following chapter, in encouraging the church in Corinth to give, Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giving, giver. And I want us to hear that this afternoon. Amongst all of these kind of attitudes of giving, I want, I want us to leave it that each person decides in their heart before God what it is they should give. And they should do so joyfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giving, giver. I had a preacher once who was preaching on this same passage and, and said, and I haven't had a chance to, to look it up and check it out, but said that actually the, uh, the expression used, the original uh, language used, was that God loves a hilarious giver. You know, you give out of hilarity. You know, it's, it's, it's such fun to give. So we give hilariously to support the work. And the final uh, attitude that I want us to touch on is that we give, our giving should be in response to God's grace. It should be fueled by grace. We don't give because there are laws requiring us to do so, as in the Old Testament. I hope we don't give because there's an expectation of others on us that we should give. But we have a far greater reason to give, and that is that we have experienced God's grace. 
This motivation is apparent in many of the examples that we've looked at this afternoon. In Acts 4, when Luke writes about them selling land and houses to meet need, he attributes it to the fact that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Yeah, they'd been touched by God's grace, and it had changed their lives. It was radical. And it was in response to that grace that they were prepared to sell their possessions to meet needs of others. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, Paul talks of the grace that God had given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Later in that chapter, as he urges the Corinthians to give, Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gave up everything for us. He left heaven's glories and humbled himself, coming as a servant, and took on himself the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. In doing so, he's unlocked for us the treasures of heaven, the hope of an eternity spent with him. Our adoption into God's family as sons gives us access to a glorious inheritance, an inheritance, an inheritance far greater than any one of us in this room could ever hope for in this life or than we could ever hope to pass on to others in this life. It's a glorious inheritance. It's this message of grace and our response to it that needs to fuel our giving, just as was the case for the early church. The hymn writer, Isaac Watts, captures this sentiment in these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we 
we are just struck by the words of that hymn writer of the way in which you were prepared to send your son to earth to face a cruel death that he might take on himself the penalty of our sins, that we might be set free from our sins, that we might know your forgiveness, that we might know new life, that we might know what it is to be part of your family and to have access into that glorious inheritance. We want to thank you so much for sending Jesus We want to thank you, Jesus, so much for your willingness to come to earth, for your willingness to suffer in the way that you did, to take the penalty that was ours. We want to thank you so much for the love that motivated you to do that. Thank you that we are rich recipients of your love rich recipients of your grace and of your mercy. And we thank you. We want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand what it is that we can bring to you as a rightful offering to you. I pray that you would speak to each one of us afresh, that we would hear from you and we would hear from your word and we would seek to be faithful in applying your word in this aspect of of giving, that we might grow together, that we might grow as individuals in our faith and learn to put our trust increasingly in you, Lord Jesus, but that we would learn to grow together in community because we look out for one another and meet one another's needs. And that we would grow as a community of your people because we give faithfully so that your word can advance across this town into areas that have not yet been touched, into lives that are hostile to you. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be faithful in responding to your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be help us to be those who become more and more like you in the love that we have for one another, the care that we have for one another, and the desire to meet one another's needs. Will you help us in all of this? In Jesus' name. Amen.